Offense, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 20 down to 24 again. Joshua 4 from verse 20, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." As a family, we used to make the journey from Olness to Edinburgh uh, four times a year to visit Mum's father. And it reached the stage where we had done the journey so often that I knew the exact number of parking places between Inverness and Perth. Uh, that's how sad I was. You just gaze out the car window and you count every single parking place, every journey four times a year, every year uh, for 18 years. Uh, And as we made our way along the A9, we would come to the Sloth Summit. And each time, Mum would ask this question, can you see the soldier's head? Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the soldier's head is a rock formation on the A9 at the Sloth Summit. It's this rock formation that just looks like a a soldier's head, a soldier's helmet. And every year and every journey was the same. Mum asking the three of us in the back the same question and us having the same conversation about that rock formation. Well, today we're baptising Owen Campbell into the life of our congregation And before doing so, we're going to look at this passage from Joshua 4 about important conversations regarding a mound of rocks. We're looking at these verses under three headings, the command, the crossing, and the conversation. First, the command, verses 1 to 10. Here the author focuses on the command that the Lord gave to Joshua. We can start by noting the context. If you remember 40 years earlier, The Lord had called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the land that he had promised to give them. And for the next 40 years, the people had wandered in the wilderness because of their failure to trust in the Lord. At the end of these 40 years, Moses had died and his assistant Joshua had been appointed his successor. The time for entering the land has now arrived But the river Jordan is blocking the way. In the previous chapter, we find the Lord instructing Joshua to have the priests carrying an Ark of the Covenant set foot in the Jordan. And when they do so, the waters stop and it allows the people to cross what was once a flowing river on dry ground. While the priests stand in the midst of the riverbed with the waters no longer running. We move from the context to the command in verses 1 to 7. We hear the words of the Lord, verses 1 to 3. Once the nation have finished crossing, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he commands him to take 12 men, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He commands that each man take a stone from the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests are currently standing, 
And he commands that they carry these stones and lay them down at the place where they would lodge that night. We then hear the words of Joshua, verses 4 to 7. Joshua calls the 12 men who have been appointed for this task. He tells them that they are to pass before the ark of the Lord and go into the midst of the Jordan. He tells them that each of them is to take a stone on his shoulders, so it's a large stone. He tells them that these stones will be a sign among them. He tells them that the day will come when their children ask them what these stones mean. And he tells them that they're to tell their children that these stones point to the day when the waters of the Jordan stopped before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And he tells them that these stones will be a memorial, a reminder to the people of Israel forever. We move from the command to the compliance in verses 8 to 10. We see what the people do, verse 8. The people of Israel do just as Joshua had commanded. They take these 12 stones from the midst of the river Jordan and they carry them to the place where they will lodge that night. We then see what Joshua does, verse 9. He takes another 12 stones and sets them up in the midst of the Jordan, sets them up in the very place where the priests are standing. The stones will only be visible when the water level of the Jordan is low. And we see what the priests do, verse 10. The priests continue to stand in the midst of the Jordan, bearing the ark. And they do so until everything that the Lord and Moses had commanded Joshua regarding the Jordan had taken place. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we are being confronted with a remembering people. A remembering people. That's what we see here in Joshua 4. The people are told what they're to do. They're to set up a mound of stones. In fact, two mounds of stones. One on the banks of the Jordan, one on the bed of the Jordan. And they're told why they're to do this. These stones will be a memorial to them about what had happened at the Jordan. The people are to remember. They are to never forget what the Lord had done. And that's important for us to reflect on. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the film The Vow. It's a bit of a soppy, sentimental film, probably number one on Bunny's hit list. And, and it's based on a true story, based on a story about this couple. They fall in love. They get married. They have so much in common. In fact, they have everything in common. And then they're in a severe car crash. And when he wakes up, Leo, the husband, is fine. He's just got a few cuts, a few bruises. But his wife, Paige, no longer recognizes him. Her memory's been severely impacted. She's unable to remember their life together. And her amnesia results in them drifting further and further apart. And it's the same in the Christian life. Dale Ralph Davis writes, The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. He goes on to write, just as in a marriage, the real threat may not be infidelity, but simply a slow process of forgetting and gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person. So the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. In other words, spiritual amnesia 
forgetting who the Lord is and what the Lord has done, will often lead to apathy, no longer caring about who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And such apathy will then result in apostasy, just wandering away from the Lord altogether. The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. This is why the Lord's given his people his word. To aid their memory of who he is and what he has done. This is why the Lord's given his people his day. To aid their memory of who he is and what he's done. And this is why the Lord's given his people his sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to aid their memory of who he is and what he's done. So this morning I want to ask each of you the question, are you engaged in the Christian discipline of remembrance? Are you someone who is endeavouring to make use of what the Lord has given to nurture and nourish their memory of him? Can I ask you, friend, are you making use of the Lord's word? Are you making use of the Lord's day? Are you making use of the Lord's sacraments so that you will not forget who he is and what he's done? That's the command. Second, the crossing, verses 10 down to 18, where the author now focuses on the crossing of the Jordan. The crossing of the Jordan. Verses 10 to 13, we see the passing of the people. In the previous chapter, Joshua 3, we read about the people passing over the Jordan. We read about the waters coming to a standstill the moment that the priests set foot in the water. And we read about all Israel being able to pass over on dry ground. Further details are now given in Joshua 4. We're told that the people passed over in haste. Now, some writers suggest that they do so because they're scared stiff. They're scared that the waters will come over them uh, in just the blink of an eye. But it's better to see this as the people's readiness to comply with the Lord's command. They've been told, cross the Jordan, and they're now doing so. They're not hesitating. They're not holding back. They're passing over in haste. And we're also told that once the people have passed over, the priest passed over, bearing the ark. And we're told that the sons of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over. Many years earlier, Moses had agreed that these two and a half tribes would be able to settle on the eastern side of the River Jordan, while the other tribes would remain on the western side. But Moses had told them that they were to help the other tribes settle in the land, conquer the land. And now these two and a half tribes pass over before all the people. And as they pass over, we see that 40,000 of them are passing over, all armed and ready for war. They are keeping the promise, they are keeping the pledge that they had made. We move from the passing of the people to the promotion of Joshua in verse 14. In the previous chapter, Joshua chapter 3, the Lord had made a promise to Joshua. He had promised him that on that very day, he would begin to exalt him before all the people. And the reason for that exaltation was that Israel would know that the Lord was with Joshua, just as he had been with Moses. And that promise is now being kept here in Joshua chapter 4. Verse 14, we read, 
the Lord exalted Joshua on that day. And we also read that Israel stood in awe of Joshua, reverence toward Joshua, just as they had stood in awe or reverence of Moses. We move from the promotion of Joshua to the progression of the waters. Verses 15 to 18. We hear the command, verses 15 and 16. Once again, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he commands him to tell the priests who are bearing the ark to come up from the Jordan. And having heard the command, we see the compliance, verses 17 and 18. Joshua commands the priests to come up out of the Jordan and the priests do so. And the very moment the priests' feet set foot on solid ground, the moment they set foot on the river bank, the waters start to flow again. It's a clear proof to everyone who is present on that day that what they've seen is a miraculous event, a supernatural event, a divine event. The Lord has been working. The Lord has been acting on behalf of his people. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted not just with a remembering people, but a reassuring presence, a reassuring presence. That's what we see here in Joshua 4. If you look at verse 11, and then verse 16, and then verse 18, you see this mention being made of the Ark of the Lord. Now, what was that? Well, it was a box representing the Lord's presence with his people. And so as the people now prepare to enter this promised land, A land that's filled with potential but also threat. They are doing so with their eyes focused and riveted on this symbol of the Lord's presence with them. And that's important for us to reflect on. I recently came across a story about a a father with his three young children. Here's another test for Bunny for the next uh, couple of months. Maybe he won't do it. Maybe he'll, he'll chicken out. I'm not sure. But anyway, this father was driving through the city centre. And it was a dark night. And they passed a really derelict old building. And as they passed the derelict building, he asked his children which of them was brave enough to spend the night there all on their own. No answer. And then the father said, well, what about if I gave you a million pounds? Would you then spend the night in that building all on your own? Again, no answer. And then the father said, What about if I was to spend the night in the building with you? Would you do it for free? And they all said yes. His presence made a difference. We look at Bunny today. I'd probably go into any building with Bunny. I'd just say you first. And in the same way, the Lord's presence makes a difference. It provides reassurance for the believer, even in uncertain, unsettling seasons. That that was the promise the Lord gave his people in the Old Testament. He said that he would be present with them as they passed through the waters, as they passed through the rivers, as they passed through the fires. It's the same promise that Jesus gives his people in the New Testament. He says to them, all authority, all power, all control has been given to me and I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what some people call the Emmanuel principle, the God with us principle. 
presence of God, the presence of Jesus makes a difference. It provides a reassurance. And so this morning I simply want to ask every person who's here, as well as the family who are visiting with us, I want to ask, are you someone who is taking heart from this? Are you someone who knows that the Lord is with them? Yes, in their seasons of of joy, but also their seasons of sorrow. Are you someone who rejoices in the Lord's presence, not just in your times of triumph, but but also in your times of turmoil and turbulence and, and tears? Friends, there is a God, there is a Jesus who says to every single one of his people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never forget you. It's a comforting presence, a reassuring presence. Well, that's the crossing. And then third and finally, we have the conversation. Verses 19 to 24, where the author focuses on the conversation concerning this event. Verse 19, we see the month. The author tells us when the people crossed the Jordan, beginning of verse 19, it was the 10th day of the first month. Now you're all sitting here today thinking, big deal. What does that mean, 10th day of the first month? Well, in Exodus 12, we see that it was the 10th day of the first month when the Lord brought his people out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. And now in Joshua 4, it's the 10th day of the first month when he brings his people into the land of promise. And that wouldn't have been lost on Joshua. That wouldn't have been lost on those with him. They would have looked at their calendars and said, whoa, it's the 10th day of the first month. It was a reminder to them of the Lord's faithfulness, his 40-year fidelity. The author goes on to tell us where the people stayed. Look again at verse 19. They lodge at a place called Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. No further information is given about that place. We move from the month, though, to the monument in verses 20 to 24. We see the activity, verse 20. Joshua takes the 12 stones that the 12 men from the 12 tribes had taken from the, from the midst of the Jordan. And he sets them up at Gilgal, makes a monument, makes a, makes a standing pillar out of them at that place. And having seen the activity, we see the anticipation. Look at verse 21. As Joshua sets up the stones, he speaks to the people. And he speaks to them about a question that they might be asked. Joshua anticipates the people going for a walk with their children. And when they walk with their children, they would pass that pile of stones. And their children might ask the question, what do these stones mean? And having seen the anticipation, we see the answer. Look at verses 22 to 24. Joshua tells the people... That when they're asked the question by their children, what do these stones mean? They must provide them with an answer. These stones point to the day when Israel passed the Jordan on dry ground. These stones point to the day when the Lord dried up the Jordan. Just as he dried up the Red Sea 40 years earlier. 
Joshua is to tell the people, these parents are to tell their children about what the Lord had done. And Joshua then tells the people that they're to tell their children why the Lord had done this. Look at the very end of verse 24. The Lord had done this so that all the nations would know that the hand of the Lord was mighty. That the Lord is strong enough to control the forces of nature. And the Lord had done this so that Israel, his own people, might fear him as their God. And so, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted, not just with a remembering people, not just with a reassuring presence, but also with the responsibility of parents. That's what we see in Joshua 4. Joshua expects the children of the present generation of Israelites to have questions about that mound of stones. And Joshua provides the parents with an answer when their children ask the question, what do these stones mean? The parents are to tell their children about what the Lord had done and about why the Lord had done this. Joshua is highlighting the responsibility that lies with these parents. And that's important for us to reflect on. Peter Jeffrey writes this. The children's questions were to be answered by the parents, not by Joshua, not by the elders. The minds of our youngsters need to be provoked to ask questions. And these questions are to be dealt with by parents. Thank God for pastors. Thank God for Sunday school teachers. Thank God for youth leaders. But primarily the responsibility for teaching the children of Christians about God rests with parents. To provoke such questions, we should bring our children regularly to the services and ordinances of the church. If they do not hear such things and see such things, how can they ask what do these mean? And you know, when I read these words, I thought about my own dad. Now, if my dad were here today, he would say that he got a lot of things wrong as a parent. No parent is perfect. Not even Bunny. No parent's perfect. But dad did his best to point each of us to the Lord and to take us to the places where we would hear about the Lord and about what the Lord had done. Let me give one example of this. I think I've shared it with some of you before. It was 2003. Very famous year. Rangers won the treble, Donnie. 2003. And it was the Champions League. And Man United were playing Real Madrid in the Champions League. And this was a Real Madrid team consisting of Roberto Carlos, Zinedine Zidane, Luis Figo, the Brazilian Ronaldo. It's an amazing team. And the, the Man United team had David Beckham and Paul Scholes and Roy Keane. I mean, this was a classic match. But it was a Wednesday night. And Wednesday night was prayer meeting night in Roskine Free Church. Now, my brother and I are massive football fans and we had the silent agreement that we would skip the prayer meeting and we'd watch the match. And Dad got wind of it. And Dad said to David and I, 
Boys, what comes first? Watching a football match or hearing from God's word? We went to the prayer meeting. But you know, every time I watch the highlights of that match on YouTube, I'm one of these sad people. I love watching old football matches on YouTube. Every time I watch that match on YouTube, I remember Dad's words. And I remember how seriously he took his role, his calling as a Christian parent. Now this morning I'm not telling the parents in this congregation to make sure that your children are at every single service and at every single church event. I am not saying that. But I do want to encourage you today parents, especially Mary and Bunny, to be taking your children to the services, the places where they will be stimulated to ask questions about the Lord, about what it all means. And when they ask you such questions, point them to Jesus. Point them to the Lord. Point them to the one who has done mighty things in the gospel. Don't say, go and speak to Hugh. Don't say, go and speak to Grandpa Donnie. Don't say, go and speak to one of the elders in the church. Say, I'll tell you about Jesus. That's the responsibility on every parent in this church. To take your children to the places where they'll be stimulated to ask questions. And when they ask these questions, point them to Jesus. And that's an encouragement for every person in this congregation. Those of you who are parents, but also those of you who aren't parents. That we would be praying for every parent, every family in our congregation that the Lord would equip them and enable them and empower them to fulfill that role. It's easy for Bunny to get his children into church right now. He can probably take the two of them in both arms. But he's probably looking at his brother-in-law, Callum, and thinking, well, it's a bit more of a wrestling match for Callum to get his two boys into church. And then he's maybe looking at some others in this church with teenage children and he's thinking, well, that's going to be even harder to get them into church. So friends, pray for the parents in this church that the Lord would equip them and empower them and enable them to take their children to the places where they will be stimulated to ask these questions. And pray also that the Lord would give them the ability to point them to who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. His mighty works. That's the primary calling on a parent. It's not to get your children having the best university degree, the best college degree, the most successful job in the council. The primary calling of every parent is to point your children to Jesus. Well, I hope that's been an encouragement.